Amen. You may be seated. During the call to worship, when they point out all the exits, uh, I am thankful that when I get up there, there's not a stampede for the exits. So thank you for staying. All right. Also, although I've been tempted to go down to junior church when they do dismiss them because I know they have a great time down there. But we do uh, are concerned that everybody's safe and sound and secure in our facility here. And so that's why we do that. And uh, we are thankful that you are here today, especially to our guests today. Uh, I was thinking about the passage that Wes uh, read for us today. We'll be looking at what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And I thought for a new year beginning, uh, this will be a one-off sermon uh, of just out of the Lord's Prayer there. But I thought a good way to kick off the new year, the first Sunday of the new year, as we participate in the Lord's Table together and as we consider what 2019 will hold. And I hope uh, with you, as with myself, that we are impressed not only with the responsibility of being a person of prayer, but also the great privilege of approaching God the Father in his throne room in prayer. But I was thinking, you know, uh, I don't know about you, but there are times when I have dry spells, believe it or not, where it's hard to pray and not knowing what to pray. Uh, And it's a discipline, I guess. Some call it a spiritual discipline. And it seems like it should be so natural to talk to our Heavenly Father. And yet sometimes we can be so busy and so involved in things that uh, it can go by the wayside because it is a discipline, uh, isn't it? Well, I was thinking there's got to be maybe an easier way, especially in this high-technology society that we live in. And we just take out our cell phone and type in a short message, and we could Twitter it to God or whatever they do, tweet it, I guess, to God, and he would get our message right away, and we could move on with uh, the activities of our day. Well... You probably are not surprised, but there are a number of websites where you can kind of do that. In fact, there was one I was reading about called newprayer.com. And it says, it used to say there, simply click on the pray button and transmit your prayer to the only known location of God. Now, this is interesting because these guys claim they know exactly where God is at. And uh, you can send prayers via a radio transmitter to God's last known location, which is star cluster M13, which is believed to be the oldest star cluster in our universe. Well, uh, no surprise here, Crandall Stone, uh, who is an engineer and is interested in outer space, uh, he was sitting around with a bunch of friends in Vermont, And they were sipping brandy and philosophizing about life in general. And they started talking about the Big Bang Theory. And then somebody suggested that if everything was in one place at one time and the Big Bang happened someplace, then God must have been there too. And so uh, Stone did some research, got a hold of NASA, and they realized that M13, that star cluster, is supposedly the oldest star cluster in our universe that is known anyway. And uh, if they could set up a radio transmitter through the Internet, they could send people's prayers directly to the presence of God. And so they chipped in about $20,000 and built a radio wave transmitting website. And uh, Stone reports that they were transmitting about 50,000 prayers a week from people all over the globe. Uh, If you go there now, that website's for sale. So I think God must have shut it down. He said, I don't want all these radio transmissions. And so it's done for now. 
but I was thinking about the whole issue of prayer, and they got it all wrong because the Bible's very clear that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a believer priest, and you can have direct contact with God. You don't need a website, a radio transmitter, satellites, any of this stuff. Uh, you have a direct access to God in prayer. What a wonderful privilege that is. You maybe uh, have never heard of Edward McKendry Bounds. Edward McKendry Bounds. He's better known as E.M. Bounds. Uh, he was born in 1835, and when he was 14, his father died. And Edward Bounds uh, traveled with some family members from Missouri, where he was born to California in the gold rush, and they stayed there for a few years. And they were unsuccessful, and so they went back to uh, Missouri and uh, the South, and that's where he received an education. He started out, and he was educated as a lawyer. And uh, then uh, the Lord got a hold of his life, and Edward Bounds went on and became a pastor and a leader in local congregations. But Edward Bounds, E.M. Bounds, is known for his books on prayer. Uh, In his life, he wrote 11 books, and only two were published before his death. He was not a well-known man. He was not popular. He was not well-to-do. But he wrote some very deep, classic books on prayer. And nine of the 11 books are just simply on prayer. And you can still get those today on Amazon. I think you can even download them for free on the Internet. Uh, But they're worthy of a read. They're not very big. But E.M. Bounds uh, was a man who was really focused on the whole purpose of prayer. In fact, it is said that he would uh, get up at 4 a.m. every morning and pray from 4 till 7. Uh, Certainly uh, puts many of us to shame. Uh, Not that it's a contest, by the way, but he was so focused on prayer. And uh, he spent a lot of time in that. But one of his quotes which sounds like it could have been given yesterday by a contemporary theologian, goes like this, and you may be familiar with it. E.M. Bounds wrote that what the church needs today is not more and better machinery, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but people whom the Holy Ghost can use, people of prayer, people mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through people. He does not come upon machinery, but upon people. He does not anoint plans, but people, people of prayer, unquote. E.M. Bounds, I would recommend him to you. Today, as we consider 2019 and we look at the whole issue of prayer, we think uh, that there's a certain assumption that people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ are automatically people of prayer. Well, all of us need to be reminded of this whole issue of prayer and what God has to say about it, what the Lord Jesus Christ says about it. If you take your copy of God's Word, if you haven't already, and turn to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6. Just to set the context a bit, what we're at when uh, he teaches about prayer here in chapter 6, we're right in the middle of a lengthy sermon, probably the longest recorded sermon that Jesus gave, and it's often, it's known popularly as the Sermon on the Mount. Go back a page to chapter 5 of Matthew, and well, let me start this, in chapter 4, verse 17, Chapter 4, verse 17, it's critical to understand. To understand the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and what's contained in this sermon, you have to understand Jesus' purpose for this sermon. In chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came to present and offer the millennial kingdom to the nation of Israel. I believe that it was an authentic offer at that time that if Israel would have accepted him as their Savior, their Messiah, that his kingdom on earth would have been established at that very point. And so the Sermon on the Mount, in, uh, he, he is going to lay out what it means to be a citizen or a person in the kingdom of heaven. And oftentimes this whole passage is confused and misapplied uh, to the church age today. And there are many principles that we can learn from the Sermon on the Mount. But he is talking about citizenship in this kingdom for that generation of Jews. That's why he calls upon them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that was the same message John the baptizer proclaimed as he was the introducing the Messiah. And then in chapter 5 is where this sermon begins. Look at verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountains, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying... And then if you page over to the end of chapter 7, verse 28 and 29 of chapter 7, this is the end of the sermon. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. It's interesting that we need to place ourselves in the historical context of what was going on. Remember, Bible study methods is we make observations, and on the basis of the observations, what the text is showing us, then we interpret the text, and finally we apply, or the Holy Spirit applies the text, what it means to our lives today. And so we need to understand the historical context. One of the primary uh, components of Bible interpretation is the historical setting. Because the author, Matthew in this case, was writing to a particular audience at a particular time in a particular context. And Matthew is a particularly Jewish book where he is presenting his purpose of this gospel is to present Jesus Christ as the coming king, the sovereign of Israel. And that's what he's presenting. That's his purpose in presenting Jesus in a historical fashion as he records this in the book of Matthew. And so we come to chapter 6, what we often call the Lord's Prayer, which is really a misnomer. It's really the disciples' prayer. The Lord's Prayer is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, where Jesus prays for his people, for his church. And so we come to that. But in this context, Jesus is refuting the common uh, wisdom of the day, which was taught by the Pharisees, the religious elite of Israel. They were the ones that controlled the religious scene of Israel and of the Jewish people. And he is refuting that because if you're familiar with Jewish history, the Pharisees had built up a legal system, a law system, and they had over 376 some odd laws that if you were a good Jew, if you were an observant God follower, that's what you would do. But Jesus refutes the proclamation of the Pharisees in chapter 5. And now in chapter 6, he repudiates not just their proclamation or their teaching, but the practice or what they were forcing upon the people. The practice of giving in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. The practice of praying, which we'll look at today. 
the practice of fasting, chapter 6, 16 through 18, the practice of accumulating treasure, chapter 6, 19 through 24, and the practice of judging others, chapter 7, 1 through 6. And so he's talking about what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven that he is offering to the people of Israel. Now, there are many applications for us today, and one of these we'll see today is the whole process of prayer, the components of prayer that he was teaching his disciples. This prayer is known really as the disciples' prayer, and he gave this prayer to us not to be memorized and recited by rote, which is typically what we do with the Lord's Prayer, don't we? I was thinking about that. We probably all know the Lord's Prayer by memory. If I ask anybody here, you could probably by rote, say what the Lord's Prayer says. We've put it to music. In fact, a a number of years ago, there was a rock singer at Wembley Stadium in Great Britain, and his closing song was singing the Lord's Prayer, and everybody stood up and sang with him. And this was not a church event, and there are probably many non-Christians in that concert, and yet people know it. It is very famous. And yet, this is not a prayer that uh, we are to memorize necessarily. It's not a bad thing, but we have to put a mind behind our prayer. Notice in verse 9, where Jesus says, pray then in this way. He's warned them, don't be like the hypocritical Pharisees who want to be seen in their religious garb out on the street praying. Uh, He said, pray then in this way. He does not say, pray these words. He says, pray in this manner or in this way. And the principles we find there that, first of all, prayer engages the worship of God in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me again. Pray then in this way or this manner, our Father who art in heaven, our Father. There is an aspect of worship. When we address the Father, we are addressing one who has vital relationship to us. We're talking about his nature, his nurture, and it's our Father. In other words, we come with a childlike, worshipful attitude, or we should. Uh, It begins with worship. We address him as God, our Father in heaven. That's the essence of prayer. Jesus in uh, Matthew here, in, in the record of Jesus in in verses 1 through 18, uses the word father, addresses the father some 10 times. And only those who have true inner righteousness can address God in, the way of, in that way of worship. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have righteousness imputed to us by the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross of Calvary. Romans, the Apostle Paul in Romans talks about this imputed righteousness, that there is nothing righteous in us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we are given this account. We are not imparted righteousness, but we are imputed. It goes to our account. We are declared righteous by the righteous Holy Father when we trust in Jesus for everlasting life, when we believe in him for everlasting life. And so this prayer, it engages the worship of God. There's a recognition that we in ourselves don't know all things. We don't have all power. And so automatically and right off the bat, We address our Father who is in heaven. And there's this aspect. And heaven is not M13, the star cluster. You know, I've come to the conclusion that heaven is wherever Jesus is, you know, and that we have a future and a hope in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. He's our advocate. He is the one who loves our souls. He defends us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And so this triune Godhead is carrying everything together. And the second element we see in verse 9, hallowed be your name. 
There's an address of honor here. We probably don't use the word hallowed very often in our speech, but what that means is reverence. That's the second element of worship. His name is to be revered or honored. Uh, It's a name above every name. And I was thinking about names today, and of course in Scripture, names have meaning more than perhaps they do today, uh, about people's character, about uh, their skills and all of that. Uh, but in the, in the Bible, people typically, their name reflects something about their character. And this is uh, God. His name is above all names. His name is the one that we worship and go to. There's an interesting, this is a side note or a footnote to the name thing. But if you go to First and Second Kings, there's the prophet Elijah. It's interesting to trace it through at the beginning of his ministry as a prophet. And he's referred to as Elijah just like your name would be used, my name would be used if somebody were identifying us. But it seems to morph. If we go through First and Second Kings, it's first of all Elijah, and then it's Elijah, the prophet of God, or the prophet. And finally, towards the end of his life, he simply called the man of God, the man of God. Isn't that interesting that his personal identity went away and he became simply known as the man of God. But here is the name, this honor, this name, a name above all names, our Father who is in heaven. So prayer engages the heart of worship, if you will, the desire to worship. If you don't feel like worshiping, if you don't think through the aspect of giving glory to God, then how good is your prayer going to start Are you going to worship him? And that's the recognition that he is sovereign. He is all-powerful. Secondly, prayer expects the work of God. Not only does it engage the worship of God, but in verse 10, prayer expects the work of God. When you pray, what are you expecting? Do you go with anticipation as you pray that God is going to do something amazing? In verse 10, it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We addressed this uh, earlier when we were in the Psalms uh, last year, uh, the fact that when we pray this, your kingdom come, we actually have a heart's desire, a holy desire, that God in his assurance will fulfill all of his covenant promises to his people. And we talked about the promises that had already been fulfilled, and we look forward to many Bible promises that have yet to be fulfilled. Are we anticipating the fulfillment of that? And now some uh, 2,000 years later, we are still awaiting his millennial kingdom, this kingdom that will be actually a theocracy set up here on earth. Over the history and over the centuries, human beings have tried to set up some kind of theocracy, and it always fails because human beings are sinful creatures. But God, when Jesus Christ reigns in Jerusalem, it will be a perfect kingdom, this millennial kingdom. And as his subjects, we will rejoice in that. Are you anticipating that when you pray his kingdom come? It's based on that assurance that God will fulfill what he said he's going to fulfill. Uh, Dr. Ramesh Richard, who teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, he was in uh, Berlin right after the Berlin Wall fell. And he records that after its fall, he was there. And he was taking photographs, and he inadvertently caught a woman embracing a young man, a 50-some-year-old woman embracing a 30-something young man in the viewfinder of his camera. And he recognized that both of them had tears streaming down their faces. 
And uh, Ramesh Richards relates that he was quick to apologize for intruding, but the woman interrupted him and in broken English said that it had been the first time in 27 years that she had seen her son. Uh, She had been trapped in the east during the building of the wall, and uh, her son had remained in the west, and she was overcome with emotion. She was awestruck at a few days before, seemed so impossible that the wall would even come down. You know, for you and I, for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our tendency is to make this present life seem like the norm, don't we? Day after day, kind of the same. Work, eat, sleep, repeat, you know, it's that same thing time and time again. But yet, do not forget there is a joyous reunion that is ahead of us and awaits us after this life when Jesus Christ reigns. So there is a holy desire and also there's a submission that should be involved in our prayer prayers. Your will be done, praying for God's will. We pray to include his request that his will would be accomplished on earth today as it being accomplished in heaven fully and willingly. Uh, some of you may have read Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the, the Russian writer who during the Soviet era was imprisoned uh, in Siberia, but Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his book, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, he confesses and tells us about the horrors of the Soviet detention camps, prison camps in Siberia. He relates that one day he was praying with his eyes closed when a fellow prisoner noticed him and said with much ridicule, he said, prayers won't help you get out of here any faster. And uh, Opening his eyes, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn recalls and records that I do not pray to get out of prison, but to do the will of God, to do the will of God. That's more important than where we're at. We're not praying to get man's will done in heaven, but to get, get God's will done here on earth. Any prayer that gets to heaven starts in heaven, essentially. So we pray expecting the work of God, anticipating it. When you pray and as you analyze your own prayer life, what are you anticipating? What are you hoping for in that? And is it spirit-controlled? Thirdly, prayer entreats the weight of God in verses 11 through 13, the weight of God. Uh, many of you know when uh, before we went on to graduate school, I worked in the heavy, operating heavy equipment in the woods in Montana, and uh, I ran all sorts of different heavy machinery, And it was interesting that when I was running a little D4 cat, uh, it was a neat little cat, uh, but it didn't have a lot of power. And it didn't have a lot of weight to haul the power around. But when you were on a D8 cat, a dozer cat, and you used the weight of that cat, it had all sorts of potential. It had all sorts of power. When I say we prayer entreats the weight of God, it's entreating his power, his glory, who and what he is. And in verse 11, we see the provision of prayer. Look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Isn't it interesting that uh, we can pray about those things which seem kind of mundane, but it's the recognition that everything we have in our comes from God's gracious and good and generous hand. Praying for our daily food is part of the prayer. It means sufficient for today because none none of us know what tomorrow holds. It's almost reflective of the Israelites in the, in, in the wilderness when God gave them manna, just enough for the day, just enough for the day. And if they collected more, it would rot, and they were out of his will. Uh, and so there's this aspect where everything we have that comes down today is provision, and we pray for that. 
I'm told that an African impala can jump uh, to a height of over 10 feet and cover a distance in one leap greater than 30 feet, quite an animal. Yet these magnificent creatures cannot, or can be kept in an enclosure in a zoo with a well-designed three-foot wall. How can that be? It's because the animals will not jump if they cannot see where their feet will land when they land. You know, faith is the ability to trust what we cannot see, and with faith we are freed from the flimsy enclosures of life that only fear and when we allow fear to entrap us, whatever that is. So faith is the exercise of trusting an unknown future to a known God. Provision for us. And then there's pardon. Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. We could spend a whole sermon series on this whole issue of forgiveness. But he's praying about pardon requesting spiritual needs, not only our physical needs and our daily bread, but our spiritual needs, forgiveness too. And this implies, by the way, in the grammar here, that the, forg- the, the petitioner has already forgiven those who had offended him. And that is one of the keys is when we hold on to those hurts and those pains and those difficulties. Uh, you know, it's like the famous saying is, is it's looking at another person drinking poison and hoping they will die. You know, it's just that bitterness that takes over our soul. Many people do not experience the joy of forgiveness because they have not extended forgiveness to other people. Pardon of debts. One commentator I read noted that you can tell what a man's relationship to God is by looking at his relationship with other people. If this person is at variance with fellow people, if he's quarrelsome, competitive, argumentative, troublemaking creature, and he may even be a diligent church attender, He may be even a church office bearer, but he is not a man of God. If a man is distant from his fellow man, it is good proof that he is distant from God. If he is divided from his fellow man, he is divided from God. Jesus' words here explain this statement about forgiveness in verse 12, in uh, verses 14 through through 15 there. Uh, Jesus Christ gives us this opportunity, so we pray that we would be forgiving people and forget that we would be forgiven. And then there's protection. Look at verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, by the way, this one phrase has caused much consternation among Bible translators and people, Christians of people of faith. In fact, it was this phrase that the Pope and the Vatican said that we need to change. And they've done a 16-year study and have gone back to the original languages and to the Latin and the Greek and to all of this. Uh, Basically, uh, Spurgeon, the great evangelist of the 1800s, had it right. Uh, We recognize that in this passage, this protection, this spiritual weakness, we pray for deliverance from temptation. Uh, That word that's used for temptation is also translated testing, delivered from this time of testing. And it's interesting that uh, in chapter 4 of Matthew, remember Jesus Christ, after he was baptized, his inauguration, introduction into public ministry, he was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan or to be tested by Satan. And he answers Satan uh, with Scripture when Satan tries to deceive him. Remember, God does not tempt us. Uh, James, in uh, chapter 1 of James, uh, tells us this in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. 
That doesn't mean there will be testing to prove the, the value of our faith and our gold that we have in that sense. You know, there are pictures in ancient Rome that I've seen of method of threshing grain. Uh, one man is always pictured as stirring up the sheaves of wheat or grain, and another one rides over them in a crude cart equipped with rollers instead of wheels, and short, sharp stones and rough bits of iron are attached to these cylinders to help separate the husks of the grain from the, the grain itself. This simple cart was called a tribulium, a tribulium, and from which we get the word, our word tribulation. And when great affliction comes on us, we often think of ourselves as being torn to pieces under the cruel pressure of adverse circumstances. Yet, as no thresher ever yoked up his tribulum for the mere purpose of tearing up the sheaves, but to disclose the precious grain, so our loving Savior never puts the pressure of sorrow and disappointment upon us needlessly. So remember that when you are tempted, that this is a test, and that we can pray God would deliver us from these tests and deliver us from the evil one. And then the second half of verse 13, prayer energized by the wonder of God. Now, let me just say, if you use the English Standard Version, the New International Version, or the New English Translation, and some other versions, I didn't see what all of them, but uh, if you notice in the New American Standard, that's the version I use, the last phrase is in brackets. And there'll be a little note there that says, this phrase does not occur in the earliest Greek manuscripts that scholars study. And so depending on the translation team of your particular version, they may choose to include it like New American Standard did in brackets with a note, or they may choose to put it in a side margin with a note that this does not occur in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, anyway, I think it's a beautiful saying, and so I will include it in the text. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forevermore. Amen and amen. Prayer energized by the wonder of God. There is certain submission in that statement. It's adoration and recognition of the Father's kingdom, his power, and his glory forever and ever. What a great way to finish your prayer is to think about the wonder of God as you complete whatever it is you've been praying to him about. The Father who will hear and the King who will answer. Jesus Christ is the pattern, it is the framework. This Lord's Prayer is the framework with these very uh, <clears throat> uh, simple kind of mnemonics, if you will, that God is working and he will engage us in worship. We are to pray expectantly for the work of God, entreat the power of God, the weight of God, and then finally energized by the very wonder of God. Uh, one of the favorite uh, movies or films from a long time ago, I always was a fan of Gary Cooper, the actor Gary Cooper, but there was a film made called Beau Jest, and it's a story about the French Foreign Legion in the Sahara Desert. I don't remember much about the storyline. All I remember is the graphic image of the Legion's, Legionnaire's fort in the desert being attacked by uh, the nomadic tribesmen, and the Legionnaires were dropping like flies. I don't know if you remember the scene of that movie, and uh, so Gary Cooper and his remaining sidekick went around and they propped up the dead soldiers in, their, uh, in each one of the gun slots and put a rifle there so that the enemy would think that there were still soldiers protecting the fort, that it was fully protected. 
And as the camera panned along the wall, the, fort, the, the viewer could see the rifles protruding through the gun slit in the fort and the sightless legionnaires slumped behind the walls. And that image of the fort in the desert protected by lifeless defenders is also, uh, sadly, could be an image of the church in America today. Many Christians see the church simply as a fort in the midst of spiritual and moral desert. And what the tendency is to retreat to our little forts and become increasingly irrelevant in life itself. In the words of the late Francis Schaeffer, he said, quote, How shall we then live? Unquote. Are we as believers called to man a fortress in a moral wasteland of our society, or are we called to engage the world in a different manner? So as you think about this past week, as you think about your encounters with various people across your circle of influence, if you will, whether it uh, be your neighbors, other family members, classmates, coworkers, store clerks, even telemarketers, uh, you may wonder, okay, how did I impact each one of these lives? How am I to interact with them? How do we engage our society? Because each one of us is only an individual, but yet the church can engage the society and make a difference. And are you praying for that? And for us, a real Lord's Prayer, uh, that we would grow in Christ, that we would make sure that he knows, that, or what we know that he is always powerful. Samuel Chadwick, another commentator, wrote these words. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, marks at our wisdom, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Let us be a people of prayer. As the men come forward to help serve the Lord's table, as an act of worship and really an act of wonder when we think that Jesus Christ told us in the passage, the central passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he told us to do this in remembrance of him. And uh, I think uh, has been stated that sometimes our memory is pretty short and we need to be reminded of things. And that's why Jesus instituted the Lord's table, that his church would be remembering what he has done for us and what he is continuing to do, that he has saved us from the penalty of sin. We look forward to a glorious future in heaven where he saved us from the very presence of sin. But in the meantime, we live in this place where we are being saved from the very power of sin called sanctification. And so these remembrances help us to reflect back. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. And again, every month as we prepare for this, I'm challenged personally by what do I remember? What do I remember? And I look back and I'm thinking of God's faithfulness through the years. He is so faithful. And oftentimes we think of God's will as looking ahead like, okay, I can look on my, on my smartphone and see the map of where I'm going. Uh, whereas I think God's will many times is revealed as we look over our shoulder and see his faithfulness through our history and as we look at that. But in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul gives us the instructions for what we are to observe here. Paul writes, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he's betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And uh, we are thankful that Jesus Christ took those elements of the Passover meal that Israel had been celebrating for thousands of years, and he was the fulfillment of their anticipation of all the symbolism around the Passover, and he instituted 
the new meaning because he is the fulfillment of that Passover meal. And so he prayed, and then they distributed the bread. And I'm going to ask Wes Crago to give thanks for the bread this morning.